particularly powerful about the words of a wise, godly person as they face death. On June 7th, 2019, an author and teacher and counselor named David Pallison died of pancreatic cancer. He's written a number of books. Some of you may have read some of them. We've given a few of them away here at Covenant Hope, different occasions. He wrote one final book before he died, Safe and Sound, Standing Firm in Spiritual Battles. And at the end of that book, he knew he had pancreatic cancer. He knew he was going to die, and so he wrote about that. Here are some of his final words. Six months ago, I was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. As I write, I'm facing the real possibility of my own death. By God's grace, I've been able to continue working, yet much of my work is bittersweet. I'm handing off responsibilities and jobs to others. I'm involved in making plans for the future that I'm not likely to be a part of here on earth. Our family continues to grow with grandchildren. I wonder if I will be here to meet my next grandchild. Those I love are also in the midst of this battle with me. My wife, children, grandchildren, extended family, friends, friends at work. We're all confronted with the evil of death and illness. In the midst of this battle, the weapons Christ gives sustain and equip us to battle against the last enemy, death itself. Today I'm called to fight this final battle with Jesus as my armor and his spirit as my strength. The world tells us that medicine is our only hope. We don't want to get fixated on finding a cure. We want to be wise. And so we pray. We arm ourselves with the truth that the Lord is near and will be our good shepherd. We take up the sword of the spirit and remember Jesus' words that sufficient for the day is its own trouble, and we ask for help one day at a time. At the end of the book of 2 Timothy, Paul is nearing his life, the end of his life. He knows he's going to die. And the words that we're going to read this evening, and to talk about, and to have preached, are some of the last written words of Paul, the apostle. He's going to urge Timothy to come to him quickly in the last few paragraphs, but we don't know if Timothy made it before Paul was executed. Paul must have known that he might not see Timothy ever again. What's the one thing, just the one thing, that Timothy must not forget? Well, let's listen carefully because surely we must not forget it either. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy it's in the New Testament towards the end, chapter 4, and we're reading verses 1 through 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Follow along with me as I read. <clears throat> I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and you're our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the big idea from these eight verses is never stop preaching God's word, hoping in Christ's return. Never stop preaching God's word, hoping in Christ's return. And the outline is short. It's two points. Preach God's word, hope in Christ's reward. Preach God's word and hope in Christ's reward. And so the first point, preach God's word, we see in verses 1 through 5. Paul begins this final portion of his letter to Timothy, I charge you. It's an emotional, profound, soul-stirring moment in this letter. He's saying to Timothy, I strongly urge and warn you. The words and the tone of what Paul writes is setting the scene as if they, the two of them, were in a packed courtroom with witnesses standing by. And Paul is charging Timothy in front of them. Everyone will hear it. Everyone will know what is being taught and demanded of Timothy. But the everyone is most importantly God. Paul continues, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. God is there bearing witness to what Timothy will read when he gets to those final paragraphs in the letter. No matter where he sits when he's reading it, no matter what's going on around him, God is there. And the charge that Paul gives him is being borne witness to by that God. I could pull you aside after church and I could ask you to do something for me. And you would probably do it. You'd probably be glad to do it. But it would feel completely different if I had you stand up in front of the whole church and I asked you to repeat after me, I, Katrina McNair, do solemnly swear to, or I, Rahul Ravi Shankar, do solemnly swear to, you get the idea. It would land with weight on you. It's the same when someone gets married. It was the same last weekend when Ashley and Joseph got married. 
And the officiating pastor, Pastor John Welkner, said something like, we're gathered here today in the presence of God and these witnesses to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. And then there's a charge that was given to both of them. Those questions, do you, Joseph, take this woman? Do you, Ashley, take this man? And the emphasis here in Paul's words is on the Jesus who is one day returning in power. God, Paul goes on to describe Christ Jesus as the one, quote, who is to judge the living and the dead. And what that means is the people who will be alive when Christ returns and all the people who have died before that. Jesus will judge everyone, everyone who's ever lived. We repeat this truth, of course, when we recite the Apostles' Creed together. At that point in the Apostles' Creed, we say that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe that. Paul next says here in our passage, by his appearing, I charge you by God and by Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing. This is the Jesus who is witness to this charge to Timothy, who will come back and will appear to everyone. Everyone will see him. Jesus himself told his disciples in Mark chapter 13, verse 26, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And lastly, Paul says, and his kingdom. Jesus will reign as king of all creation. He will reign as king of all, every person, every planet, in fact, everything. And at that time, there will not be a single thing or a person who will not be submitting to Christ's rule. Now, the charge from Paul is what? Preach the word. Preach the word. To preach is to herald. It's to announce. It's to proclaim. Like someone in times before newspapers existed who would go about crying out important news in the marketplace so that people would know what was happening. Timothy is to herald the word. Now, Paul has spoken throughout his letter to Timothy of the deposit, the sound teaching, the truth, the faith. And now all of those are represented here by this phrase, the word. They all mean the same thing. You see, Timothy has no authority to proclaim anything else other than God's word. Likewise, I have no authority to preach anything else to you than God's word. I'm bound by God to tell you what God says, not what I want to tell you, not something I've dreamt up on my own, not something that I think would be good for you, but God's word. I've mentioned before that Joanne and I are reading in Jeremiah every morning. We're still reading in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is long. 
Now, Jeremiah was a prophet who communicated God's word to the people. And as you heard read earlier in our service from Jeremiah chapter 1, God had consecrated Jeremiah even before he was born. He was to be a prophet. And God was going to tell him his word to relay to the people. There were other prophets in Jeremiah's day, and they made up things. They spoke things that the people wanted to hear. They were considered false prophets, no matter how popular they were. And about them, God says in Jeremiah 23, 16, for example, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. And then farther down in verse 30, God says, Behold, I'm against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. So just because they prefaced their visions to the people with, this is what the Lord declares, doesn't mean it was true. It was false. It was not what God had told them to tell the people. The faithful preacher cannot preach anything other than God's word. Additionally, to be faithful, I want to proclaim to you all of God's word. So to hold something back from you is not to be faithful. It's not to tell you everything that God is saying in his word. And that's why we're committed to expositional preaching as our main diet of teaching in the services here at Covenant Hope Church. Hopefully, before you leave Covenant Hope, you'll hear from many places in God's word that you might not have thought to be very important for you. (laughs) Maybe you'll hear from Leviticus. One day I plan to preach from Numbers. One day I'll preach the book of Revelation to you. And I've preached in the past even uh, genealogies and lists of people. This is all in God's word, and so it's all important. It's all for you to know. And I would be unfaithful as a preacher if I were to skip over any of it just because it didn't seem applicable to you. It is applicable. Paul had told Timothy in the verses that we covered last weekend, all Scripture is profitable. If the church that you're going to is only selecting topics that they think you need to hear and delivering them in topical series only, Do you think that they'll ever preach through Leviticus? Will they ever help you understand how the whole book of Revelation is put together, as confusing and mind-boggling as that book is? Probably not. All of God's Word is what a faithful preacher should preach. Now, Paul goes on to list four marks of faithful preaching, how Timothy is to preach the word. The first thing there he says in verse 2 is be ready in season and out of season. You see, Timothy was to be ready to preach God's word always. There was no clocking out (laughs) so that he was off duty. No, there might have been times of rest. And still, if someone had come to him in those times of rest and said, tell me about God's word, he should tell him. Paul might have put it another way by saying, be on duty at all times, Timothy, when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. 
the need to preach God's word is always urgent. It's a message of life and death, and people's eternal destiny is at stake. And so the faithful preacher is always ready. The second thing he says there in those three words following that phrase is reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Another way to state this would be correct, rebuke, and encourage. God's word is used to address different people in different ways. And that might happen for different people in the same sermon. When you come and attend a service here and you hear from God's word, some people might hear encouragement. Some people might hear rebuke. Some people might be corrected in what they think. All from the same bit of God's word. It's amazing how God does that. Sometimes God's word simply corrects wrong ideas about God or ourselves. Other times God's word sharply convicts us of our sin, which is a mercy of God. And he rebukes us and calls us to change our actions. Still other times we come in and we're discouraged and we need encouragement. We feel frail and God's word can build us up. It can give us courage to press on or to step through a fearful time in our lives. You never know when you gather every week how God is going to speak to you, but be assured he knows what you need and his word can supply it. The third phrase there that we see in verse 2 is with complete patience. Timothy's to preach God's word with complete patience. God oftentimes takes extended time before he causes his word to begin to work in us and the faithful preacher has to remember that. It's the preacher's responsibility to proclaim God's word faithfully. It's God's responsibility through the work of the Holy Spirit to cause people to grow through it. The preacher can't make that happen. Now, if a pastor becomes impatient with his congregation's lack of growth, he's likely to become harsh and unkind which shows a lack of trust in God's timing with his congregation. So every faithful preacher needs to preach with patience, waiting for God to work. And that last phrase describes his preaching as well. It says, and teaching. You see, all preaching has some element of teaching or instruction in it. The proclaiming of God's word should help the listeners understand what God's saying and why he's saying it. To rebuke or to correct without instruction is really to leave the root of the error untouched. And so teaching replaces the error with truth. Over time, good teaching from a pastor should help the congregation. They should help, it should help them be familiar with how God's Word all fits together, or all 66 books, in fact. Or how to understand God's word when it comes in various forms like historical accounts or poetry or logically arranged arguments like speeches. Preaching with teaching elements must be a part of the faithful pastor's ministry. Now one of the main reasons that Timothy should preach with these four things characterizing his preaching is what will be happening in the society around him as he preaches faithfully. And so Paul reminds him of that in verses 3 and 4. Look with me at 3 and 4 again. Look down there in your, in your Bibles. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Well, that's not very encouraging for the preacher. This is going to be the reception that some of the people are going to give him. Paul says that many people are not going to want to hear the truth that you're preaching, Timothy. They're going to have what he calls itching ears. And the only thing that will relieve that itch that they have is to listen to teachers who will tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Teachers who suit their own passions, it says. Rather than listen to God's word and decide whether it's true, these people are going to decide what they want to hear, and then they're going to go and find teachers who teach those very things. The message of God's word is not something, of course, that we see. It's something that we hear with our ears. Jesus would oftentimes teach, and then he'd tell people, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you see the danger in only seeking out teachers who tell you what you want to hear? Whose messages maybe go down smooth and sweet? Are you willing to accept God's word even when it convicts you of sin and makes you uncomfortable? Do you find yourself hearing God's word proclaimed and taught and then thinking to yourself, listen, I just can't believe in a God who's like that. Oh, friends, beware. Beware. You may just have itching ears and a hard heart that won't let God's word correct you or your wrong ideas about himself. To reject God's word is eternally dangerous since salvation comes through hearing the message of salvation. Timothy was already beginning to experience the future time that Paul was referencing when people would reject God's truth and seek teachers who told them the lies that they wanted to hear. Faithful preachers will constantly then feel the pressure from people who have itching ears to change the message. That will be the pressure. To leave unpopular parts of God's word out. Maybe to soften it up. But listen, as a man who's trying to be a faithful preacher, I have to resist that. And you will too as you share the gospel with the people around you. Inasmuch as you become a preacher of God's word, someone who heralds the good news, people around you are going to have itching ears as well. They might not want to hear all that God's word has to say to them. Very few people will want to hear that they're in rebellion to God, that they've sinned against God and that he's going to punish all sin with his righteous wrath on the day of judgment. Most people want to hear that they've done enough good deeds to earn God's forgiveness or that God thinks highly of them and will say to them something like this on the day of judgment, hey, at least you weren't as bad as so-and-so. Of course you're welcome in heaven. You're not Hitler, are you? No. But that's not the truth. And as your pastor, I must keep telling the truth. And you must keep telling the people around you the truth. 
The pastor who consistently tells the truth about God in times where people regularly reject the truth will need to have these characteristics that are described in verse 5 then. Look there at verse 5. As for you, which is in contrast to those who have itching ears, always be sober-minded endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And so Paul gives four more commands. Boy, these passages that we're looking at today are just littered with commands from Paul. Sober-minded, the first one means thinking clearly and calmly. Think of a military sentry who's standing guard and staying awake throughout the night. He's never sleeping. He's sober-minded. He won't get caught off guard. The faithful pastor will have to endure suffering as well, just as Paul has mentioned so many times already in this letter. Suffering comes with the mission of preaching the gospel. Timothy's also to do the work of an evangelist. He heralds the evangel. That's in that word, evangelist, the evangel. In other words, he's to proclaim the good news. That's what evangel means, good news. So no matter how many times God's word declares that you've gone astray with God and that you do deserve God's just wrath, I also want to declare every time I stand here that God has lavish love and mercy to, to offer to sinners, even you, no matter what you've done. No one is so sinful that the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ can't wash it away and bring you permanently into the loving and gracious family of God. God sent Jesus into the world to do just that, to go to the cross and in his crucifixion to receive the wrath of the Father on behalf of anyone who would repent and put their trust and faith in him. Have you responded to God's grace offered to you in Christ? Trust Him today. Lastly, Timothy must fulfill his ministry. He must preach God's Word until God's Word has been exhausted, until his life is completed. Now, there's no fewer than nine commands for young Pastor Timothy in these five verses. And they sum up, really, a faithful pastor's ministry, which is all centered on the preaching of God's Word. Paul's last command to Timothy there is to fulfill your ministry. Do it until it's complete. And that's the station of life that Paul finds himself in. He's at the end, and he's looking ahead to the reward that awaits him. And so once again in this letter, he points to himself and the hope that he has, which should also be Timothy's hope as well. So just like Moses was followed by Joshua, like David was followed by Solomon, like Elijah was followed by Elisha, Paul saw himself being followed by Timothy. Now, we'll look at the last three verses under the title, Hope in Christ's Reward, verses 6 through 8. That's the second point this evening, hope in Christ's reward. In verse 6, Paul considers his certain death. In verse 7, his own fulfilled ministry. And in verse 8, Christ's reward 
for a life of faithful service to God. First, verse 6. Look at verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, Paul says. In the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, chapter 15 and chapter 28, different kinds of sacrifices are listed that the Israelites could bring to the Lord's temple, and one of them was a drink offering. And so in Numbers 28, 7, for example, it says, In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. Animals were offered as a sacrifice by killing them and burning them on the altar, and drink was offered by pouring it out on the ground, wasting it as a sacrifice. And here Paul is picturing his life, and especially now at the end, as if it's his lifeblood that's being poured out in service to God. In fact, his whole ministry has been a gradual pouring out of his lifeblood for Christ. And the next phrase adds more description of Paul's coming death through another metaphor. He says, and the time of my departure has come. The Greek word that's used here paints the picture of a boat being untied and pushed away from the dock as it leaves and goes on a journey, its departure. If you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings movies or read the last book, which is titled The Return of the King, you may remember that it all ends with the main character named Frodo boarding a boat with the wise wizard Gandalf. They're leaving their friends behind to sail to a new promised land, which is called the Grey Havens, which is really emblematic of heaven. And here's what it says in one of the last paragraphs in the book. And then Frodo kissed Mary and Pippin, two of his friends, and last of all, Sam, and went aboard, and the sails were drawn up, and the wind blew, and slowly the ship slipped away down the long gray canal. And the light of the glass of Galadriel that Frodo bore glimmered and was lost. And the ship went out into the high sea and passed on into the west until at last on a night of rain, Frodo smelled a sweet fragrance on the air and heard the sound of singing that came over the water. And then it seemed to him that as in his dream, the gray rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back and he beheld white shores and beyond them a far green country under a swift sunrise. You may not know the books or the movie, but I think you can get the idea that there is a sad departure happening, but there's hopes of where the ship is going. Paul knew that the end was really a new beginning. He knew his death was coming soon, but he had always known it was coming, of course. His life of ministry since meeting Jesus was complete, and so he could look back on it with satisfaction and a sense of completion. And so he says in verse 7 then, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Everything in that sentence is past tense. It's done. He had gathered the Ephesian elders years before this moment and told them that he knew he was pouring out his life and that one day the Lord would take him home. And so he said to them in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, 
If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul always knew it was coming. And just as Paul used the imagery of a soldier and an athlete earlier in this very letter to describe the work of a pastor, he uses it again here in verse 7. Fighting and competing in a race are hard work. And that's what the Christian life is. Not just for pastors like Timothy, but for any Christian. One of the most important books in my early growth in the Lord just after I'd become a Christian it was a book by a man named John White. It's called The Fight. I may have mentioned it to you before. The Fight. It's aptly titled. And he says in the very first chapter, and he's addressing a young Christian, someone who's just become a Christian. He's, he speaks to this person, you. And here's what he says. You have also established a new relationship with the powers of darkness since you became a Christian. Whatever you were before, you became a Christian. Straight, horoscope reader, witch, warlock, or Satanist, you are now the sworn foe of the legions of hell. Have no delusions about their reality or their hostility, but do not fear them. The God inside you terrifies them. They cannot touch you, let alone hurt you, but they can still seduce, and they will try. They will also oppose you as you obey Christ. If you play it cool and decide not to be a fanatic about Christianity, you will have no trouble from them. But if you are serious about Christ being your Lord and your God, you can expect opposition. Are you in the fight? Are you running the race? Or maybe are you taking a break? Have you stepped out of the battle? Have you decided to call a timeout on following Jesus as Lord or maybe giving yourself to the work and proclaiming the gospel? Brothers and sisters, that's one of our covenant responsibilities to one another, to be encouraging one another to stay in the battle, to keep running the race. If we see one another on the sidelines of the battle, let's call each other to account. Let's give one another a hand. Let's hand them back their sword and say, come on, get in it with me. Keep following Jesus, no matter what you're facing. Not only do we encourage one another to keep fighting against sin and running the race of growing in holiness, we also urge each other not to lose sight of the reward that awaits us. It's an important part of the motivation of any faithful Christian. And that's what Paul does for Timothy in verse 8. It's worth reading out loud again. Look at it with me. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Jesus had taught on the sermon on the mountain. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Paul was counting on that treasure, and in this case, a crown of righteousness. The crown mentioned here is not a kingly crown, but it's a wreath or 
small branches of an evergreen tree or a bush that would be laid on the head of a victor who had just been, uh, had been placed first in one of the Olympic Games. It wasn't worth much in monetary value, but the winner's crown, oh, that wreath, that wreath was something of great honor to receive. And in Paul's case, it was a crown of righteousness, a wreath of righteousness. Because of Christ's transforming work in Paul's life, God had enabled him through faith and the power of the Holy Spirit to live a righteous life. Not free of sin completely, but righteous because he was walking in faith. But a life of righteousness comes only when someone repents and trusts in Christ. And when anyone does that, they exchange their life of sin for the perfect righteousness of Christ. You see, we begin at that moment in time to share in His perfect righteousness as a gift. It's credited to us. And when we stand face to face with Christ on that day, what we have as a promise and a guarantee from God, we will finally receive in full. It will be given to us. Our salvation will be completed. The crown of righteous, Christ's righteousness will be placed on our heads. Paul had written to the Galatian church, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. He was waiting for it. He knew it would be his because Jesus had promised it. Who will give it and when will it happen? Well, it's there in the verse. The Lord Jesus, the righteous judge, would award it to Paul on that day. That's the day of judgment. Paul has mentioned it multiple times in this letter already to Timothy. Paul was in an underground prison cell awaiting a verdict of guilty and a sentence of death from an unrighteous judge, the Roman emperor Nero. But he knew that a verdict of not guilty and a reward of righteousness would come after that from the only true and righteous judge, Jesus. That's what he hoped in. That's what fueled his faithfulness in ministry for all those years of suffering and hardship. And that's what would fuel Timothy's ministry, which had really just begun. And that's what can fuel our faithful fight and our running in the race of faith. Oh, brothers and sisters, the ward is not just for apostles like Paul or early church pastors like Timothy. Look at the end of verse 8. Paul says, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There it is again, his appearing. Just like at the very beginning in verse 1. Only this time his appearing probably refers to the incarnation, the very thing that we were singing about earlier when we were singing songs that we sing typically at Christmas time. The coming of Jesus Christ into the world, his appearing. Everyone, not just apostles who believed in and loved the coming of the Son of God into the world to save sinners, all of them will receive this crown of righteousness from Him. So if you've trusted in Christ and you love Him, if you're walking in righteousness and good works as evidence of your true faith in Him, 
you will inherit this reward. Every single one of you. Are you looking beyond your day-to-day troubles? If you're in the midst of persecution for your faith, are you lifting your eyes to the horizon of your life to see the reward that awaits you? Church, we need the promise of God's grace and reward in the future to empower us to live faithfully for Him today. Regularly meditate on your heavenly future. Fix the certainty of Jesus' second coming in your minds as it could happen today (laughs) or tomorrow or next week. It's going to happen. Those of you who are not Christians, do you see that true Christians don't follow Christ to be rewarded in this life? (laughs) We expect hardship. We expect a bruising battle. We anticipate a marathon that's going to make our faith muscles ache. (laughs) Our real reward is in the future, and it's far, far greater than anything we could receive in this life. And it could be yours too. Your deathbed is not the time to think about how to live your life or who to live it for. That's too late. Do you believe these things that we hope for? Do you believe them? Christ is inviting you to live for the eternal future with Him. Trust Him for it now. Paul's final charge to Timothy was to preach God's Word and hope in Christ's reward. That's what Paul had done. That's what Timothy was to do. And that's the charge for every gospel minister, including me. And it relates to you too. As a Christian, you're called to proclaim God's word to the world in your conversations, in your workplace, among your family, to the person you sit next to on the metro, perhaps. And you're offered the hope of Christ's reward to empower you when proclaiming him is hard and costly and the wait is long. David Pallison continued writing at the end of this last book before he died. He said this, As I reflect on this last battle, I can see that the Lord has been preparing me for this battle through my whole life. In the midst of my confusion, unbelief, and the fear of death, God used Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 to bring me to faith. It was my first encounter with the belt of truth that Jesus gives his people. Now, more than four decades later, I'm staring death in the face. Instead of my faith failing, the promise of a new heart holds true. God is still shining into the darkness of my heart to give me the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The reality of death has made the truth of God's word come alive to me. The whole Bible is about life and death. It's about what is going to happen to you when you die. It's about right and wrong, true and false, hope and despair, obedience and recklessness, faith and idolatry. 
This is the drama that we and those we minister to are living in. And the miracle is that we are given a new heart, a heart of flesh and a new spirit so that we can and will live forever. What a privilege it has been for me to serve my faithful Savior these many years. What a privilege it has been to walk with others in need. And what a joy it will be to see him face to face. David Pallison sees him face to face right now. And we will too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of heralding it to the world. Lord, enable us to be faithful. Lord, enable me to be faithful. And Lord, we praise you for the promise, the sure and certain promise that you will come back and that you will reward those who are your children, those who've repented and trusted in you. We praise you for the hope of that crown of righteousness and seeing you face to face, living with you forever and ever and ever. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Turn with me.